new book, yay. <laughs> and when you know it, I remembered that I forgot to change the picture on your bulletin right after I made all the copies. So I immediately went in and changed it for next week. So next week, the picture will be different. I apologize. You get Joel for an extra week on the front of your bulletins, but you'll survive that. Now, we have moved out of a letter. We are not in a gospel. We are not in history of any kind. We are, even prophetic literature is different from the book of Ecclesiastes. We are in wisdom literature. Now, we have worked through wisdom literature before as Job falls into that category. However, Job falls under the category of wisdom literature mainly because it doesn't fit anywhere else. Job still deals with a lot of history and a lot of understanding of history. So working through Job is more like working through a prophet and a gospel than it is just working through straight wisdom. Ecclesiastes is not that way. So we will have some difficulties that we will uh, attack as we get into this. Does that make sense? Rather than try to catalog them all now, and then you forgot what I went over, and I forgot what I went over, and then we're confused later on. Better to deal with the problems as we get to them and go from there. Now, typically when we start a book, we go over our author and the details about the book. Well, we're going to get to that in a second, so just put that on the back burner. Instead, I want to give you our goals as we work through this. These will be our goals both today and the next 12 weeks as we go through this with breaks. Because this is going to take 12 weeks to go through, we will get interrupted for Palm Sunday and Easter, and I believe all the way into Pentecost. So we'll get a couple of breaks in the middle of Ecclesiastes. It will take us a while. Now, we want to understand the observations that are being made in the book. We do not, however, wish to then take them and move them directly into our world. We want to understand the observations in light of the world of Ecclesiastes and in light of the wisdom of God, and then take that understanding, who God is, what this observation means in light of who God is, and then apply that understanding to our world. Does that make sense, the difference there? If we skip the understanding of God part and in light of his work, we take the observation, run straight to our world, and really, really bad things will happen. (laughs) I'm not, you know, it's not like if you cross the streams in Ghostbusters, but it's close to that bad, okay? We, again, as you apply the wisdom of Scripture, you apply it in light of who God is and what he has done. And that means we cheat. So that means on occasion we don't just stay in the book, but we actually see what's coming after and what has come before so that we can ground the work in the history in the right time frame. So if we do that right, we will not be depressed as we go through Ecclesiastes. We will actually be encouraged because we will see God's work in light of the observations of humanity. Sound good? Okay, with all of that said, let's dive in. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Well, that should narrow down your author nicely, shouldn't it? I mean, that can't be too many people in the grand scheme of things. Traditionally, that has meant Solomon, king from 971 to 931 BC. And historically speaking, that answer makes a lot of sense. Because of things like 1 Kings 3. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and not asked for yourself long life, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. So, 
Solomon is a smart guy. Solomon can figure things out. He's got a brain that actually works and he can make sense of the world because God has blessed him richly in this area. Because of that and because of this verse, the traditional understanding until about 1900 was that Solomon wrote this book. That is, of course, challenged because we're not allowed to have nice things in the world. So that has been challenged in the modern world. And what's interesting is it has been challenged on grammatical grounds. Now, are we going to follow those grammatical challenges? The answer is no, but there are valid reasons. So when dealing with your Bible, you have to deal with historical, linguistic, and translational issues. And yes, linguistic issues and translational issues are not the same thing. So we deal with translational issues as we understand our text as we have it in English. When dealing with authorship, we have to deal with linguistic issues. So the argument as to why Solomon is not the author of Ecclesiastes is because of the language that is used in the book of Ecclesiastes. There are what we call loan words. Now, trying to think in English what a good example of this would be, but the problem is half of our language is loan words. <laughs> we borrow from other languages. English is like the mutt of the linguistic world. We don't have a history or tradition that goes in a straight line. Ours kind of is like that kid from the Family Circle cartoon. It, it starts over here and it ends up here and that should have taken 35 seconds, but instead it took 3,500 years because we did this the whole way. So the problem with Ecclesiastes comes in that there are Persian loan words and there are other linguistic loan words that come out of, you're going to love this, the 10th century BC, the 4th century BC, the 2nd century BC, and the 2nd century AD. <laughs> now, if I told you that, and I told you that this book borrowed from all of those places, where would you date the composition of this book? You would have to put it in the 2nd century AD, right? Because it's borrowing these words from that time period. There's a problem with that. There are our oldest physical copies of this book come from the second century BC, <laughs> three to four hundred years before the words it supposedly is borrowing. In some, <laughs> yeah. So, so this doesn't make sense. So this becomes an issue because there are several theories on this. The simplest one is actually the one I think makes the most sense, which is that Solomon writes. Solomon is a smart guy, and most of the borrowing that you can find could be explained by the fact that you would require a human being that had a grounding in Hebrew, had a grounding in Phoenician spelling, and also had a grounding in Syriac languages coming out of what would be now modern-day Syria. Now, if you picked a guy historically who would do that, you could actually find him quite easily. His name is Solomon. Because David has subdued the Philistines, but they've never really gone away. The Philistines are a Phoenician people. You have a Phoenician alphabet. Solomon would be very familiar with their language. Where does Solomon get the timber to build the temple and build his palace? S Syrian region. So Solomon, very familiar with this area. And again, smart guy. Wise beyond his contemporaries. So does it make sense that the language that he uses would borrow from the richness of his knowledge and that the language that he's writing in would probably be, to quote the great prophet Yosemite Sam, a little highfalutin. The answer is yes. The other problem with that, how many of you guys like reading Shakespeare? <laughs> Why don't most of you like reading Shakespeare? Because it takes too long. Because you read through and it's like, I got to stop and get my these and my thous and I got to make sure I, you know, yonder light through window breaks. Nobody writes like that. Nobody writes like that. And that's the only Shakespeare I know other than double, double toil and trouble, culture, burn and fire bubble. There you go. <laughs> You're welcome.
because of that, now fast forward a few centuries, and someone's reading Solomon's highfalutin Hebrew, borrowing from Syrian, borrowing from the Philistines, and they're reading this and saying what? This doesn't make any sense. So you have an editor. You have people redacting. You have people making changes. You have people trying to make it make sense to the people in their world. Is that a perfect answer? No. Does it explain things? Yes. Now, if I can give you an explanation that preserves the historical understanding that people had for the better part of 2,500 years, I'm going to take that over a dude sitting in a university in the 1920s going, I don't think Solomon wrote this. Why not? Because I read it like this. I'm going to take the historical example because you know what my answer is. If you're the first person in 2,000 years to come up with something, you're probably wrong. You're probably wrong. Not everyone who came before you was a nitwit. They were smart too. They thought things through. So we reject the modern understanding. We, we line up with the historical understanding. The other reason we do this is what I mentioned earlier. This book is weird. And I'm serious about that. This book is unique and it does not fall into any other category. Ecclesiastes doesn't even fall into the category that Proverbs and Psalms would fall into. Psalms you can think through like a song book, like a wisdom book. Proverbs you can think through like a wisdom book. Ecclesiastes is a cynical, borderline angry look at the world. And this is something we're going to cover as we get more into it, so I don't want to dive too much into it. Because of that, the language and the viewpoint that it operates from is unlike anything else. There are numerous... The word... Oh, oh, it came right back in. Sorry. Uh, there is a, a word in translation called a hapax legomenon. Don't write that down. <laughs> it is a word that occurs only once. Yes. There are several of them. Ecclesiastes has many of them, simply because no other book of the Bible deals with life, deals with the world, or deals with subject matter the way that Ecclesiastes deals with it. It's one of the reasons why I like Ecclesiastes, because it takes the world and looks at it from a perspective that no other scripture wants to look at it from, and yet comes to the conclusion that the rest of scripture still comes to. I like that because all wisdom eventually, if you follow it rightly, leads where? You read your Bible. When you get to the end, what's the answer? If you got somewhere else, you got it wrong. So if you want more on that, you can ask questions about it later, but I'm not going to eat up the rest of our time going over this. So let's keep moving. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Well, why don't you tell us how you really feel? And that escalated quickly, didn't it? Why? <laughs> we, um, we don't have a reason for this viewpoint yet. We will very shortly, so stick with me. The first thing I want to make sure I point out is Solomon, wise, rich, wealthy, powerful, secure, has that view on life. There's jaded, and there is having everything that the world could provide and still being depressed and jaded. And if that's where you are, I'm a little curious. And by the way, I'm not the only person in history who's had this understanding. If you would like, one, to have a good laugh, and two, to actually be uplifted, I encourage you to go hunt around on YouTube this afternoon and look up Jeff Allen and his testimony. Because his testimony actually starts with this book and moving from angry atheism to Christian conversion because of that verse right there. So Jeff Allen, I encourage you, he, lists, he reads that and goes, that was 3,000 years ago, and he understands the world just as much as I do. I'm curious, and I want to hear more. 
<laughs> it's it's a fascinating listen. You will be enjoy you will enjoy it, and then go listen to some of his other comedy because he actually is a funny guy. So there you go. You're welcome. Verse three. Here's why everything is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his works which he does under the sun? And the answer is, well, that depends. Depends on who you are and why you're doing it. What are the two questions I'm always asking you to evaluate about your life? Who are you and why are you? The answer to that question depends, and that's the point of this book, perspective. The entirety of this book is about perspective, challenging yours and evaluating the world's. And it does it from inside the fort, which is really the best way to do it, because rather than try to look from the outside in on what the world thinks and how they believe, this book is just going to climb into the boat with them and go floating down the river and see where we end up. That'll be fun. So it continues. A generation come a goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And this is where you get to see your first little look inside the boat. Is that a true statement? If you look at things from a worldly point of view, is that a true statement? Yes. If you look at things from a scriptural point of view, is that a true statement? 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is why this is so important right off the bat. The perspective of the book of Ecclesiastes, the understanding for everything else we're going to do in the next 12 chapters, is seeing the world from the world's point of view. Looking at the things of the world as if everything here is everything. Now, this is why this is fascinating to me. The entirety of our Christian life is spent trying to do what? (laughs) See things not from that perspective. Ecclesiastes helps you understand why. Ecclesiastes helps helps you to see what goes wrong when you climb in the boat with the world, look at everything that goes along with it from their point of view, with their end in mind. You take everything that the world exalts and you say, that's my end goal. You take everything that God would exalt and you say, eh, who cares? What could possibly go wrong, right? That's what Ecclesiastes does. And we're going to do this for the, the entirety of the 12 chapters. And I promise you, if we do it right which I make you no promises that I'll do it right. (laughs) This will actually be encouraging and a little uplifting. We will be (laughs) Caleb. Positive, encouraging. (laughs) See, you did it, didn't you? The back of your brain went, (laughs) Caleb. Repent, no. (laughs) I'm sorry. I do get a kick out of the fact that there are just some universal experiences to humanity. There are things that so many of us have. That's why I actually enjoy pop culture and I make Ghostbusters jokes simply because there are some things in life that are just universal about humanity and you recognize that, oh, I got that joke, you know. And my, my always favorite is because Cameron is only two and a half years younger than I am. But there's like a gap of 10 years of pop culture world between us. We're like two different people. And so every once in a while I make a reference. She's like, I got that one. <laughs> And she feels so happy, like, yay, I got that. Which always weirds me out because I'm like, half of my references are older than me anyway. So it is what it is. Verse five. 
Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea. I am so tempted to sing right there, but I will let you imagine the righteous brothers in the back of your own mind. I always thought it was lonely rivers, you know, but it is lonely rivers in the song. But all the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place where the river flows. There they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. (sighs) When is everything complete? Yeah, this is again from the worldly perspective have you ever heard this argument? Because I actually have from people. I had, there has to be more than getting up, going to work, paying taxes, and dying. Well, if you live according to the world, I got really bad news for you. <laughs> what's, what's the pagan philosopher line? What are the certainties of life? Death and taxes. <laughs> and even after you're dead, you'll keep paying those taxes, I promise. <laughs> now, why is nothing ever complete in this world, because your Bible actually has an answer. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Always remember, Adam had work before sin. He tended the garden. He cared for the animals. Work was, technically, work was a four-letter word, but figuratively, work was not a four-letter word. Does it make sense? (laughs) With sin, work becomes... (laughs) Because it's never done. It's never accomplished. And you do the same thing over and over and over again. Which is, again, why I encourage you to follow along with 1 Thessalonians and to live quiet simple lives. You actually need to be encouraged in Christ that yes, you're going to do the same thing this week that you did last week. I mean, some of you have jobs where that's not exactly true. Even my job, I do the same thing every single week. That's okay. Not only is it okay, it is actually good because this is the course of the world that we must deal with even in Christ, which by the way, when is that actually undone? It's undone in eternity, but you do know that it is undone now, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is something we've done in Sunday school. I know we've done it in here on occasion. Uh, We've done it in longer period. I will give you the Reader's Digest version now. The theology of vocation. Your job how you function in the world. This was something that, gets, that got lost in, in history kind of throughout the Middle Ages. This is one of the things that the Reformation and specifically the Puritans did a great job of bringing back to Christian theology, specifically Protestant theology. This is why there was something, if you go back to the 17 and 1800s, the cliche that comes out called the Protestant work ethic. You ever heard that phrase? It, the, 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 a phrase called the Protestant work ethic that it it comes out of the Puritans writing on vocation, writing on your work, that your work is not just sunrise, sunset, get up, go to work, pay the taxes, go to sleep, get up, go to work, pay the taxes, go to sleep, that your work is actually in the mundane things of life that is an offering unto God. 
our Colossians 3 that we've kept coming back to since we've gone through it, that whatever you do, you do all things unto the glory of God. How you raise your children, how you deal with your spouse, how you go to work, how you drive in traffic, how you shop at the store, all of these things are offerings unto God. It takes the mundane of life and makes it a gift from the creator and a part of the building up of his kingdom. This matters because it takes the simplicity and the daily grind of life, and it actually makes it what it is supposed to be, service unto the king. That's again why the worldly perspective is broken. It can't give you this. The sun rises, the sun's going to set, and then you're going to get up, and you're going to go to work, and you're going to pay the taxes, and then you're going to die. Go team. We wonder why people are depressed the more we become pagan philosophy. Can't imagine why that message would be depressing to people. Can you? I mean, uh, what could possibly go wrong in that world? This is, again, why you must think through things Christianly, why you must evaluate the world's understanding, the world's teachings, and the world's philosophies, not from their point of view. We don't look for the common ground. We look for the anchor that holds, and we look to stand upon Christ and his teaching and evaluate from a neutral platform and say, no, that's good. Or that's bad. We keep that. We lose this. This is what's good about this. This is what's bad about this. Is we actually evaluate from a different standard. We don't come down and go, okay, now that I'm here and I'm covered in the mud too, let's see if we can figure this out. You were clean. You were out. <laughs> you don't get back in. You were out. Evaluate rightly from the perspective. That's why, again, I appreciate Ecclesiastes because Solomon is going to do that work for us. Solomon's going to go, you know what? We probably shouldn't do this, but... <laughs> Let's go climbing in anyway and see what happens. And historically, it's, it's, it doesn't end well, so, but we'll get there. Verse 9. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, so there is nothing new under the sun. Yeah, because life is not really that complicated at the end of the day. You know who makes life complicated? We do, and we're very good at it. Um, Matthew 24 kind of gives you some, some idea on this. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Luke 17 builds on that. It, has, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Life is life. People are people. Things are things. Wash, rinse, and repeat. This is why you get frustrated when you look at your world, is because you look at it and go, why is everybody acting like this is okay? Why are we just living our lives like nothing is wrong when we know everything is wrong? Because Noah built a boat for 120 years, and nobody got on with him. Because angels blinded the men of Sodom and they wearied themselves trying to get to the door. This is not a new thing in humanity. We are very, very good at pretending like, I'm okay, I got it. How many times do I remind you? You don't got it. You don't have good ideas. You don't have the strength to overcome. It is Christ who does. And you have strength as you have surrendered and are leaning upon Christ. Again, not climbing into the muck and the mire because I'm going to be the one who will overcome this. No, you're not. You're going to get dirty. 
You're going to get filthy, and you're going to get corrupted, and then you look around and go, how did I get here? No. Your power and your wisdom comes as you stay outside and look rightly with clear eyes. Look rightly with renewed mind and cleansed heart and proclaim truth and righteousness. We, the become all things to all men to save some does not mean you participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. And by the way, the same apostle that told you becomes all things to all men so he might save some is the same apostle who told you not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. There's a reason why you have to read wisdom in light of all of the wisdom, not some of it. This is the danger of our, our little cherry picking here and there, is we have to make sense of things as they are in totality, not in pieces. As I throw my water around. So verse 10. Is there anything of which one might say, see, this is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. Which is why I also remind you, the tactics haven't changed either. John 8. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Ask yourself this. I feel like I'm in front of the podium a lot today. Sorry. It means you have to look at all of me. As we have progressed as a society, how much progress have we made? And why does our societal progression look a whole lot like the old paganism of like 1,500 years ago, <laughs> 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago? Yeah, because the more things change, the more they remain the same, or to put it biblically, there is nothing new under the sun, which is again the warning of the world. How many times have I told you? What's the lie? Did God really say? This is the argument that gets used for everything. This is again why I joke about the, um, the History Channel and the National Geographic theology stuff. We did this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. The, uh, you can track this through history. Give me one second. Voice doesn't want to cooperate suddenly. You can track this through history. So you look at modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses. They're Aryans from the, third, uh, from the second and third century. They just repackaged it, put a fancy new bow on it. It's the same thing. You look at modern New Ageism that's taking Christian language and trying to give you things like contemplative prayer and meditation from a, you know, a worldly perspective as a Christian discipline. Which, by the way, meditation from a worldly perspective is the emptying of your mind. Meditation from a biblical perspective is actually the filling of your mind. You're supposed to think about things. Meaning when you wake up at two o'clock in the morning and can't sleep because you're thinking about stuff, that's actually a good thing. Think about it, solve the problem, and then you know what you'll be able to do? Then you'll be able to go back to sleep. It's amazing how that works. <laughs> and I say that as someone who was telling them the story in Sunday school about how something that happened in Sunday school woke me up at 3 a.m. on Tuesday. So isn't that fun? <laughs> That's, again, a Christian understanding as opposed to a worldly understanding. The lie just takes it and turns it. That New Age understanding isn't new. It's Gnosticism from the first and second century. It's just repackaged. It's just taking the worldly understandings, the worldly philosophies, sticking Christian lingo on it and presenting it to you. Look, 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 look. We're Christians just like you. And if you have climbed down into the muck and the mire with them, you're tempted to look around and go, you know, I don't really see the difference. This is why you can laugh at the false teachers on your TV screen who are sitting there going, don't you want to send me all your money? I'm being careful not to do the blinking thing because it'll just cause another spasm. I'm behaving myself. I'm behaving. And you look at that and go, no. 
Or when the guy, like, what was, which, which one was the guy who needed the money for his own private jet? Like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> like, we need to raise $50 million. Why? Because my jet is old and we need a new one. Yeah, and I can't possibly fly commercial. <laughs> like, I'm in on all the wrong scams, mainly because I'm not in on any of the scams, but you know how that works. It's like we keep joking, one day I'm going to win the lottery. Well, you know, I got to play it first. But see, you look at that and you go, that's insane. Who's giving the money? Well, realize when you fast forward six months, you know what he's got, right? He's got a new private jet, which means someone looked at that and went, I got to send him money. I got I mean, We have to. Because humanity will lie to itself and believe the lie all the time. Why? Because we're not evaluating who we are and why we are. This is what Ecclesiastes is going to challenge. This is what Solomon is doing. He is looking at the world from the world's point of view. That's why he continues. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Tell me you haven't looked at the world and gone, has self-awareness committed suicide? Like, does nobody know what they said 20 minutes ago? Does nobody know what they said last week, that, that we were on this side of this argument last year, and this year we're on this side of the argument, and the only thing that changed is whether or not the R or the D after their name decided to take sides with me? That's not new in humanity. This is what we do. What's, what's the line every history teacher told you? As someone with a history degree, I heard this and have told this to people too. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And that's not because history goes in cycles. It's because we're nitwits. It's because we have not looked at the wisdom of the past and gone, hey, hey, look, 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 they learned a lesson. You know what we should do? We should see what they did wrong, see how they fixed that problem, and then not do that wrong thing. Instead, we go, those morons, they couldn't have known anything. They didn't have iPhones. They didn't have the internet. Huh. Couldn't possibly be wise and something we could learn from them. They're not young and vigorous like I am until one day something pops and you're like, oh, what happened to that young and vigorous part again? And then you look at your kids and go, those kids don't listen to anybody. I wonder who they learned it from. And by the way, that's not new. I've told you this before. Um, my favorite line in history on this is from... Um, Oh, shoot. Heinrich Bullinger, who was a pastor in the 16th century, second wave of the Reformation. And in, yes, I'm weird. I've read these things. Uh, in one of his sermons, he actually tells his congregants, don't complain about the young people. Don't complain about how kids are not as good as your generation. <laughs> ah, I just did it right there. See? 500 years ago, the pastor was standing in his pulpit in Germany going, stop complaining about the kids. No, they're not exactly like you, and that's not a bad thing. What has every generation done since the beginning of time? Those kids, you know. <laughs> when I was their age, you know, we all hiked 10 miles uphill in the snow with no shoes, barefoot, you know, both ways. <laughs> these kids, they don't work hard, and they disobedient to their parents, and they don't listen, and they don't... And everyone who said that about you... If God gives you the grace to live to their old age, you know what you're going to do? The exact same thing. It's the way of things. Which is, again, the why. What does Christian wisdom say? Stop. Don't wait till you're old and gray to actually listen to the wisdom of the people who are old and gray. Look at the world and evaluate it from which perspective. Pay attention. And by the way, this goes back to your Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy 32. Moses came and spoke all the words of this song. Moses is told to write a song for Israel to memorize in Deuteronomy 32. It is a song for 
judgment because God is telling them, I'm going to send you into the land. And when you go into the land, you're going to forget the commands. You're going to forget what I've told you. And you're going to act like the pagans around you. And then you will sing this song and you will be convicted. That's the whole purpose of the song. Moses spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he with Joshua. And when Moses had finished speaking all the words to all Israel, he said to them, take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even by all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word, you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. We did this um, as we went through went through some of this in Colossians. Why is honor your father and mother the first commandment with a promise? Because what's the assumption? Why will Israel be secure in the land? Because God will secure the land. Why will they have peace and prosperity? Because God will grant them peace and prosperity. What are the conditions for that? That they love the Lord their God and serve him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which, by the way, that's not a New Testament idea. That's a quote that comes out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. It's a, it's a smushing together of two Bible verses. As they do that, what are they supposed to be teaching their children? how to do the same things. Which means, children, as you follow your parents who are following after God, you will then be trusting in the Lord. He will then give you peace and prosperity in the land and he will secure your nation and so on and so forth. That's why that matters. You're supposed to be following after them, which is what Paul Paul tells you, 1 Corinthians 11, right? Follow after, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Which means if Paul stops imitating Christ, what do you do? You stop imitating Paul. As Paul continues imitating Christ, you keep imitating Paul, and so on and so forth, down the line. How many of you learned Christianity because you were just like driving along in the car one day, you know, you know, bopping along to the radio, and then God just zapped it, and the station flipped over to Moody Radio, and you were like, and the Lord speaketh, and I believe. And next thing you know, you're, you know, you're Billy Graham yelling at everybody at Walmart. How many, did that happen to you? No. What happened? Someone told you. Someone instructed you. Someone corrected you. It's what we call discipleship. They brought you into a Sunday school class. They encouraged you to read your Bible. You asked questions. They gave answers. Or you found like one of those, several of the good TV shows that are out there of, of, of good teaching and preaching. And you watched and you had questions answered. And then you learned more and you had discussions with people. You were brought along by the people who were in the faith before you. Why? So that you will look back down the road and go, hey, hey, I see that guy about to fall into, you know, I, kid, kid, come here. I fell in that ditch. That one hurts. Don't do that. Come here. That's wisdom. That's what's supposed to happen in the Christian world. We don't get that because we go out into the world and we start turning into Lone Ranger Christianity. You know, I'm just, I'm just, it's me and my Bible and I will make sense of everything. No, no, can't work has never worked, actually creates some of the weirdest theology that will ever come out. You ever want to have some fun? Go, go dig through history and read what some of those old school hermits were writing in the third, 4th, uh, third, and 5th centuries. And some of the theologies they came up with, because it's just like, dude, no. It's a bad plan. It's actually why the, uh, the good monasteries, and there were some, why some of the good monasteries throughout the Middle Ages, you know what they typically created? It's where the first schools came from. It's where the first universities come out of. Is they come, the first professors in most of those universities, when you go back to like the University of Paris, which was established in 1048, but most of the early 
professors were monks because they'd been spending their life learning and studying, not just, you know, sitting around banging their head into a wall, hoping the Christian discipline would come along. They actually were reading their Bible and praying and discussing with each other and working through things. So when students came, hey, I'd like to learn my, about, about my Bible. You know what we'll do? Tell you what, you just lay your head on the desk. All right, hold your head right there and don't move, but I'm going to get the knowledge in. You ready? Like That doesn't work that way, does it? No, someone has to do what? What did, what's Paul's equation in Romans 10? How will they hear if no one tells them? That's why they went and got the monks, because it's like, we need somebody who actually knows this stuff. We need somebody who can actually explain this and make sense of it, because that's how Christianity has worked from the beginning of time. This is how God's system has worked going all the way back to the garden. You want a good example of this? Extra biblical understanding, right? How did Abel know he was supposed to offer a sacrifice? <laughs> was Abel just sitting in the fields one day and the sheep was like, hey, psst, come here, go get the knife. Trust me on this. <laughs> First of all, ah! second of all, no, no. Adam and Eve told him. Well, where did they get this idea? Where did Seth get the idea? Where did Methuselah get the idea? How does Noah climb off the boat and know I mean, realize as, Mo, as, as Noah's bringing the animals on, he's bringing them all on two by two, right? This is one of those trick questions. Noah, Noah brings all the animals on the boat two by two, right? Except for the ones that were clean animals that he brings on in sevens. Why? Because he's got to offer sacrifice when the boat lands. And if you bring them on two by two and then you sacrifice them, what did we just do? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> We're a few thousand years away from cloning the goats and sheep here, so we got, we got to do something else. How does no one know when he gets off the boat to offer sacrifice? How does he know what sacrifice to offer? How does he know what it's going to accomplish? This is the instruction. It is handed down. This is why the end of Genesis 4, before the genealogy of Genesis 5, is then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's handed down through that one faithful family. They know because they've been instructed. Lose the instruction, lose the knowing. Lose the knowing, and what philosophy are you going to follow? Welcome to the world, which is why, again, I tell you, when you see the sin of this world, when you see the iniquity, when you see the insanity, say something! Even if it's just to your wife or your kids or your friends, be like, can you, this is insane. You know why this is insane? And now, look, I can explain you, and you know what you've just done? You just testified to the goodness and the mercy of the gospel. Simple. Basic. We act like it's complicated because we think there's got to be, you know, I must learn the magical words and kapow, you're a Christian. Again, you didn't get zapped driving in your car one day. Someone explained it to you. And you had questions, and they were answered. And you had objections, and they were answered. And you had wonderings, and they were answered. How many times did I tell you? If you've got a question, what should you do? Ask it, because we will answer it. That's the goal. That's, 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 that's why we actually have the, the Bible thingy here, is because we can actually go through, know what God has said, and answer the question, so we can make sense of this. Lose that you end up right back where the world is every single day, which is, again, why the church can't remain silent in the face of the issues of the world. Because if we're not from our anchored position explaining what's wrong with the muck and the mire, who is, just out of curiosity? Verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. You know. I think I'll actually leave that last part 
for a second. Let's go to the first part. He's king over Israel and Jerusalem, and he set his mind to explore because he's got that kind of free time. I mean, in all honesty, he does. Part of the reason why more people don't think about the deep things of the world is because they don't have that kind of time. And in this world, you kind of needed to be a king to have that kind of time because otherwise you were spending your entire life not starving to death. But 1 Kings 6, in the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. In the 11th year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished throughout all its parts according to all its plan. So he was seven years in building it. 1 Kings 7, Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished all his house. You spent seven years building a temple and 13 years building a palace. You know what I know you have? Peace. And lots of free time. <laughs> because if you got to go off to war to secure the borders, you know what you're not doing? Building things. you got to worry about a Philistine army marching on your capital. You know what you're not doing? Shipping in lumber and gold to coat you know, the altars and things like that. Why does Solomon have this? Joshua 21. The Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Solomon has that kind of time because he's got that kind of peace and he's got that kind of security because God has granted it to him. So again, let's pick up the second half of that again. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. goes into verse 14. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Yeah, I actually don't have a problem with that statement. Because when you look at the world according to the world's philosophies, if you don't end there... You haven't paid attention to what the world can actually provide you. Which again, what is the rationale for your living, Christian? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, to God the Father. And again, the reason why this is in your Bible, we haven't read this since the book of Exodus because this applies directly to the Exodus, but this applies to all of life as well. 1 Corinthians 10. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. This is true of the entirety of your world. The entirety of your world. You are not called as a Christian to go walking through the world like this. One, you're going to trip and fall into something. Don't do that. You are called to be observant of the world, to be testing and examining of the spirits. You are not supposed to just walk willy-nilly, accepting whatever may come by. Have you ever met a Christian like this, by the way? I actually, I actually have, where doesn't matter who the person is, doesn't matter what they're teaching, if you put them behind a pulpit, they're like, uh-huh, 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 well, he called him a liar, uh-huh, you believe that? Yeah, but you believe him? Uh-huh, it's... Think for a second. Breathe. You know, that noodle between your ears. Use it for just a minute. <sighs> Again, as you are able, as God has given you grace, you think through according to your ability. We've covered this before. Christianity is a thinking religion. You are not all Jonathan Edwards, who might be the smartest guy we've ever produced in the church, but you are able to evaluate 
your world. God has strengthened you and prepared you for your life, in your world, in your place. You're not set for the life of Buck Rogers in the 24th and a half century. That's not your world. You know why? You won't be here. You're here now. Just like you're not fit for the world 200 years ago. You know why? Because you weren't there. You're here now. You are fit for this world. So think through and evaluate the world in which you are in. Be wary of the world. Recognize that there is nothing that they give you that does not have a subtle twist, does not have a gentle sometimes tug, and does not have as its foundation sin to the very core. Let's continue on. I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. We talked about this. Why does he have means and opportunity? Because God has given him means. God has given him opportunity. Who's he supposed to serve with that? God. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after the wind. I feel Solomon's pain. <laughs> and I'm serious about this. Have you ever thought about people? Seriously, have you ever spent any time thinking about people? It's annoying, isn't it? <laughs> We're an aggravating bunch when we want to be. Why? Genesis chapter 8. I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. What does it accomplish? Always remember that, by the way. We get this one wrong sometimes. The purpose of the flood was not to abolish sin, because if we were going to abolish sin, how much of earth would we have to destroy? How many of the people would we have to destroy? Yeah, we left Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives alive, which means, oops, guess what we're going to have more of? More sin! Yay, go team! It's a warning about the wrath of God. It's also a warning about the insidiousness of sin, that in spite of that judgment, in spite of that destruction, in spite of that mercy and grace, what kind of people are we? A broken people. It's about looking for something higher and greater and better in regards to redemption. Now, take that understanding and look at people. Be honest. You've seen a human being where you're like, can I just shake them for a minute? Just, okay, I'm better now. <laughs> what will that accomplish? This is the problem with us. You can't beat the sin out of us. You can't educate the sin out of us. You have to do what? It has to be redeemed out of us. When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's again what I'm constantly reminding you of, what this book is going to be reminding you of. You can't look at the world and go, there it is, we got the answer. It's right, it was right there the whole time. Because the world doesn't have any answers. The world just has the chasing of its tail over and over and over again. The answer has to come from outside. The answer has to come from God. And it has to change who we are because who we are is corrupted and afflicted by this place. And then our final verse. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. You wouldn't know anything about that Christian looking at your pagan world going, mm, I have an answer. If you would just, just, just hear me out. No, no, come back. 
You've never experienced that, right? You've never looked at the world or watched things going on in your television screen going, no, 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 I can solve this problem. I can explain what's wrong and I can show, never mind. 1 Corinthians 12. You are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrators, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. That's your lead into the love chapter that everybody wants right at their wedding. It's an examination of Christian living in the world. A reminder that I can educate, I can instruct, I can proclaim, I can plead, I can pray, I can hope beyond hope. But at the end of the day, I can't change the hearts and minds of men. I can't strangle the sin out of you. I can't yell the sin out of you. I can't argue the sin out of you. I can't hope it out of you. I have to proclaim Christ and him crucified so that the wisdom of God will overpower the wisdom of men. That's how I live in this world. And I can live that way because I am reminded of the God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And I can then look at the world and say, okay, you're not listening. We will go over this a second time and hope that this time it makes sense. Because that's the weapon we have and we don't get another one. And that's what Ecclesiastes is going to ring home. Is as we look at the world from the world's point of view, recognize, Christian, that it hasn't change, that there is nothing new under the sun. But the same grace that God poured out for Moses is the same grace that he pours out for David and Solomon and Adam and all of them. It's the same grace that he pours out on us. And it is the same grace that he pours out when he changes the hearts and minds of men and brings them into his kingdom. And we can rejoice there because the fallenness of this world is not our home and the brokenness is not our permanent dwelling but there is a kingdom that is coming that is redeemed and it is good and we will dwell in it because of who God is and what he has done and that changes who we are and how we live and nothing else does let's pray